And so the Bible has things to say in regard to that. It recognizes these things. But during these days, there are quite often some very difficult decisions that need to be made. You see, the doctor may say, well, sir or ma'am, if <coughs> your father has had a stroke and it's very severe and we need to make some decisions about life support, are we going to place him on a ventilator? Or you may receive the news about some loved one that they've had some kind of difficulty, some medical emergency, and it seems as though they're not going to be able to to feed themselves or, or in any way even know that they're here on this earth. And you may be asked the question, do you want a feeding tube? Or it may come in these terminolo- this terminology, you know, there's nothing else that we can do, but we can begin hospice treatment. Hospice is generally concerned with comfort of a patient rather than aggressive disease abatement, uh, controlling it or making it well. And its goal, (coughs) the goal of hospice care, is to help the patient so that they can get the most out of the time that they have remaining here on this earth. As we're thinking about it right here, let me just stop and say that as we come to this time in our life, uh, there, there are probably some things that you may need to do. If you don't know the wishes of your husband, your wife, or your parents, you know, especially if they're getting older, it it may be that you need to to talk with them, discuss the wishes of your loved one in regard to the end-of-life decisions right now, to be able to know what they want to be done with their uh, desire, with their wishes. And so it's a good time. It's really the time right now because none of us ever really know when that day may come, when we're called upon to have to make some very tough decisions. You probably need to even write down some advanced directives to be able to know, to have, and to give to the medical personnel that will be attending to, the, to your loved one. Your, you, yourself, or those that you love may want to let other people know what kind of medical care that you want if you are too ill to express your own desires at that time. There are some advanced directives that need to be filled out. In Alabama, you can go to a website called alaha.org and download a living will (coughs) that you can use to allow the doctors and the nurses to know what you want. That's not a will in regard to the things that you have and that you're going to pass on to someone, but it is in regard to your wishes, your desires as to how you would be treated at the end of life if you're not able to make those decisions and make that known then. It may be that you need to appoint a health care proxy. That's someone to speak for you who knows your wishes And it may even be that you need to give them a durable power of attorney to act as your guardian, to act as the one who makes the decision for you. It may be that you would, if you're facing imminent death and you know that there's nothing else that can be done, you may even want to use some uh, DNR orders, some do not resuscitate orders and have those that are nearby so that those who would be treating you would know that your wishes are not 
to be uh, have CPR or things of that nature that are done. And so you should go ahead and write down these advanced directives now. It's not our purpose to talk about those this morning in this lesson. But it is to talk about some things that Christians are concerned about in regard to the end-of-life decisions that sometimes we're called upon to make. Two things in particular that I want us to think about this morning, and that beginning is, number one, when Christians confront end-of-life decisions, they must maintain a proper view of life. Whatever we do in life, whatever uh, kind of thing that we're doing, whether we're young and healthy or whether our time on this earth is getting older, we have to remember some things about life itself. You see, we have to remember that life is a gift from God. It was He who created us, He who placed us here, He it is who sustains us. When you go to the passages that we so often visit, Genesis chapter 2 at verse number 7, God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. We understand that life came from him. When we go to the New Testament, book of Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 26, Paul says it was God who made the world and everything in it being the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not dwell in temples or live in temples made by man. But he goes on in that passage and says that God is the one who gives to all life and breath and all things. And so we need to remember as Christians in everything, every decision, every aspect of life, that God is the one who gives life. It is a gift from Him. As a result of that, only God has the right to end life or to have it ended. That's one of the things that we need always to keep in mind. It's always God who has that right. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 32 at verse 39, the Bible says, See now that I, even I am He... And there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. In the book of 1 Samuel chapter 2 at verse number 6, the Bible says, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. In the book of Genesis chapter 9 at verse number 6, God said, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. The reason? The Bible says, for God made man in his own image. In the book of Exodus chapter 20 at verse number 13, in what we know as the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law, God said, you shall not murder. And in the book of Revelation chapter 21 at verse number 8, the Bible says, but as for the cowardly, the fatherless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You see, life is a gift from God. Only He has the right to say who lives and who dies. It's all in His territory. It's all under His rule. And as Christians, we always must remember that. Whether it's at the beginning of life, 
That is, when conception comes to be, that is the life that has been given by God, therefore we may not abort that life. Or at the end, you know, it may be that when we have lived a long time on this earth and we're perhaps quite elderly and facing difficult things in regard to our health, to end that life intentionally and to take that life away. We have to remember it is God who has the right to give. Now, you may note that I also have on the slide, or have it ended, God did say that, as we noted in the book of Genesis, that the one who sheds innocent blood, man's blood, that the death penalty is in play. And in the book of Romans in the New Testament, he speaks about the civil government having the right to bear the sword. Swords are not to tickle people. Swords are to take life. And so as we look at it, God has instructed in some cases, whether it be capital punishment in regard to murder or there are many other things in the Old Testament for which people would be stoned, and that was the orders, the direction of God. But life is a gift from God, and we always must remember that. But then next, as we think about Christians and making those end-of-life decisions, Christian must also maintain a proper view of death. Not just life that we have to maintain a proper view of, but we have to maintain a proper view of death. We need to remember that death is the inevitable destiny of all human beings. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 27, we know the verse quite well. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Both Joshua and David made this statement, and they made it by inspiration. They both said, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Their death was pending. It was very near in both cases. And both of them made the statement, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Joshua chapter 23 verse 14 in 1 Kings chapter 2 at verse number 2. The only exception to that would be if we are alive when Jesus returns. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed at the coming of the Lord. We know from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 at verse number 15. And so as we think about it, death is a part of life. It has been since the Garden of Eden when man and woman, when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit that God had forbidden them. They first died spiritually and because they were separated from the tree of life, they would later die physically. I haven't told you anything, perhaps this morning so far, that you're not already quite aware of. But here's what I want us to think about. When we as Christians are thinking about this inevitable destiny of all human beings called death, we need to remember that death is not something to be feared by the Christian. It's not something that we should fear. It's not something that, that really and truly we should, we should hold in such disdain that we would never want to do it. 
Now, we're not necessarily looking forward to it, to suffering, to having pain or something like that. Even Jesus, uh, while he was here on the night before his uh, crucifixion, said, if there's any way possible, Father, take this cup from me. But we understand that it's not necessarily to be feared, the death itself, the, 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 the suffering and the pain part. No, we don't want to go through that. But death itself is not something to be feared by the Christian. Remember what John wrote in Revelation chapter 14 at verse 13? John said, I heard a voice from heaven. Well, John, what did you hear from that voice that came from heaven? John said, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. The word blessed there is from the same word that we see in the book of Matthew chapter 5 and Luke chapter 6 that's used by Jesus in what we know as the Beatitudes, Makarios. Oh, the joy. Oh, the happiness of those who have died is what is brought out. Blessed indeed, happy, joyous indeed are those who die in the Lord. If you were listening to the Bible reading this morning that Nathan did from the book of Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24, Paul says, For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. It was needful for him that he stayed in the flesh, though. But he said in verse 23, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Jesus. And the only way he could do that was through death. And so as we think about it, death is not something to be feared by the Christian. But then number three this morning, as we think about it, people, Christians, must maintain a proper view of end-of-life decisions. And one of the things that we need to remember is that there is such a thing as euthanasia. I want us to talk about that in the remaining time that we have together this morning. Let's talk about this idea of euthanasia. Sometimes we get a wrong impression about euthanasia because of what it has been associated with and what we associate with it. But I want us to talk about it this morning. Whenever we look at the word euthanasia itself, we come to understand that it's a very interesting word. It's a compound word in uh, what comes from the Greek language. Uh, the first part of it, the E-U in our English word, pronounced use in the Greek language, simply means good or well. For example, it's used in the book of Mark chapter 14 at verse number 7. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good, you can do use for them. But you will not always have me with you. In the book of Ephesians chapter 6 at verse 20, that word you or use is used again, that it may go well, is the way it's translated there, with you and that you may live long in the land. That's after telling, uh, writing about uh, children obeying their parents. In the book of Romans chapter 1 at verse number 16, 
Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. If you were to look at the original language, you would see that word you or use in association with the word gospel. Many of us have heard along the way some preacher who said that someone was preaching the euangelion. That's the original word for gospel. You, good, angelion has to do with a message. And thus we sometimes say when we're preaching the gospel, we're preaching the good news. And so when we're thinking about euthanasia, the first part of that word has to do simply with good or, or well. And the second part in the original, the word thanatos, means death. Philippians chapter 2 at verse number 8, In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Thanatos. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 and 55, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? When you put the two together, you and Thanatos, you get the word euthanasia, which literally means good death. Good death. Now, why are we talking about that? Well, let's talk about the academic world. Academia, when they're talking about euthanasia, talk about it in four distinct ways. And that's what we need to think about in regard to the end-of-life decisions. A lot of times, we think about euthanasia, and we think about the last one, which we'll talk about this morning, And we understand and we know right off the bat that it's not a good death in the sense that God looks at it, at least on the part of those who are participating in it. But what about those other three things? Let's talk about them just a little bit this morning. When we're thinking about euthanasia from the academic standpoint, some may talk about it as simply allowing one to die free of pain, allowing one to die free of pain. Now, it can be such things as giving oxygen to one who's having respiratory distress, who's having problems breathing. That helps them to feel and to be just a little bit better. It can include moderate doses of painkillers to keep a person comfortable during the excruciating pain of such things as cancer and other diseases by which they are dying. You know, sometimes though people worry about giving a dying loved one the usually opioids, you hear that word a lot in the news today, people worry about giving a dying loved one the opioids like morphine. They they say, well they may become addicted. Can I be kind but straightforward this morning? Mama used to be a lot bigger than she is and she's only 80 pounds now. Nothing but skin covering bones. And she is writhing in pain. And you know her days are very 
very few. If you're worried about mama becoming a junkie out on Skid Row, you have some misplaced worries. We need to consider that. Yes, people do become addicted to those things, but in these situations, that's not going to be even possible in most cases when someone only has a few days or hours to live. I want us to think about this as well. When we, when we look at morphine and these other opioids that sometimes are given, sometimes folks have the worry, well, it'll suppress their breathing and cause them to die. In other words, we would never want to participate in actively killing someone, would we? But will it cause someone to die? Let me read some things to you this morning. I don't usually do a, just a lot of reading, but I want to read you some things this morning in regard to this. The first thing is from the Hospice and Palliative Nurses Association position statement. And it regards the ethics of opioid use at the end of life. Here is their statement, or at least a part of it. Although experts agree that palliative care must focus on the prevention and relief of pain and suffering, clinicians, patients, and families may be reluctant to use opioids to achieve this goal. In other words, to do what we're talking about, help them to die without pain. They may be uh, uh, reluctant to use opioids to achieve this goal, particularly at the end of life. This reluctance often stems from the fear that administering opioids may suppress or depress respirations, thereby hastening death. However, listen to this part. There is no convincing scientific evidence that administering opioids using established guidelines even in very high doses, accelerates death. Numerous clinical studies demonstrate no significant association among opioid use, respiratory depression, and shortened survival. Respiratory depression and other changes in breathing are part of the dying process and are more likely to result from disease and multi-system organ failure than from opioids. Within that statement that I just made, there were seven separate studies that were cited in support of their conclusion. Seven separate studies that show no connection with the use of morphine and how it would hasten death. Here's another one from 20 Questions and Answers About Pain Relief. This is by Robert Twycross an international authority on pain and control uh, pain control in cancer one of the questions is has to do with talking about the double effect they say the double effect scares me does morphine always shorten a person's life here's the answer no hardly ever for example think of all the people who have had life-saving operations followed by morphine injections to relieve the post-operative pain. And in terminal cancer, when morphine has been used to relieve pain, it is general, 
experience that people sleep better, eat better, and are generally more active because they are no longer suffering from the debilitating effect of chronic, unrelieved, severe pain. In the vast majority, morphine is a life-enhancing and life-extending, not life-shortening. Here's another one from Killing the Symptom Without Killing the Patient by Romaine Gallagher, uh, Dr. Romaine Gallagher. He says, The concern about opioids hastening death has been a long and persistent one. Studies of the relationships between opioid do- dose, change of dose, and use of sedatives, and time of death in patients with advanced illness have found no sig- significant relationships. In a U.S. study on withdrawal of, uh, of sedatives, uh, withdrawal of Patients from ventilators, opioids, did not shorten the time to death, and the use of sedatives seemed to prolong life. Again, he cites uh, uh, about seven or eight different studies in his writing. Here's another one from Pain Control, Dispelling the Myths, Dr. Joel Potash. He says, myth number four. People who take morphine die sooner because morphine causes them to stop breathing. Here's his comment. Fortunately, patients quickly adjust to any effect that morphine may have on their breathing. We prescribe a small initial dose, gradually increasing it as needed. So rarely do breathing problems occur. They are usually not even listed as side effects. In fact, morphine is a drug of choice for breathing distress in people with end-stage heart or lung disease. It makes their breathing more comfortable. Here's another one from Virtual Hospice. Does morphine make death come sooner? When a patient is receiving regular pain medication such as morphine in the final hours or days of life, there is always a last dose. To family at the bedside, it may seem like the drug caused or contributed to the death, especially if death occurs within a few minutes. However, this dose does not actually cause the person's dying. It is simply the last medication given in the minutes or hours before the death naturally occurs. We know that morphine and other opioids are not a factor in the death of a person with advanced illness. The following information explains why. There's no evidence that opioids such as morphine hasten the dying process when a person receives the right dose to control the symptoms he or she is experiencing. In fact, research suggests that using opioids to treat pain or shortness of breath near the end of life may help a person live a bit longer. Pain and shortness of breath is exhausting and people nearing the end of life have limited strength and energy. So it makes sense that treating these symptoms might slow down their rate of decline if only for a few hours. As we look at it, just as it seems that worrying that someone is going to get addicted to the drugs is sometimes, you know, beyond the realm of reason. So it is with these other pain-killing drugs that are used at the end. 
If you noted that, that last <coughs> bit of reading that I did, the author says that there's always a last dose, and quite often that last dose is morphine that has been given. Have you ever noticed what is said in the book of John, chapter number 19? The Bible says simply this, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It's finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus said, I thirst. They gave him this vinegar mixture. Did it kill him? The answer is no. For Jesus would make it clear in various places that no man would take his life. He would lay it down. And to prove that, even in this case, he made the statement, it's finished, and then he gave up the ghost. And so as you look at it, some might think, you know, well, they ran and they gave him that wine, that, that vinegar, and that killed him. No. Some might think they gave a shot in the appropriate dose of morphine, and Daddy died just a few minutes later. That morphine must have killed him. Again, the evidence from medical uh, journals always points against that. So, as we're thinking about allowing one to die free of pain, we need to keep that in mind. Now, here are two or three other things very quickly that we want to look at in regard to that idea of euthanasia. A second is this. A person uh, is allowed to die by withholding treatments that merely prolong the dying process. In other words, a person is allowed to die because they have chosen not to have chemotherapy when they believe that the effect is very, very limited. A person might have six weeks left if they have treatment, but they'll experience some intense, relentless pain in those last three weeks of that. But without treatment, the person may die in only three weeks. But whatever way it was they were going to die, it was not going to cure them. Another one is they may be allowed to die through a medical act with death, a possible secondary effect. A good example of that would be surgery, without which a, sur a person is going to surely die. But if they attempt the surgery, the patient may die on the operating table. Are you going to try to save life knowing that the surgery might kill them? Well, you know, we need to understand things in that regard. But here's the last one. The person is caused to die through an intentional act of, to avoid suffering. You know, in our nation, people have begun talking about mercy killing, and they've associated euthanasia with that. Years gone by, Dr. Jack Kevorkian's name was used. 
by intentionally administering drugs designed to kill, or intentionally overdosing a person with drugs like morphine with the intent to take away their life rather than taking away their pain. I think that all of us could agree that that would be wrong to do that. You know, there could be some wrong motives for making end-of-life decisions. One might be greedy. Health care is expensive, you know. One might be selfish. In other words, they desire to be relieved of the, uh, serving the one who is dying. We need to remember that there's certainly nothing wrong with deciding to take treatments and use all means possible to prolong life. But what about deciding against the treatments? Well, we'd be extremely presumptuous to contend that prolonged agony here on this earth is divinely required. Could one be morally faulted, one writer asked, for not wanting to retard his journey to heaven? You see, allowing death is not equivalent to producing death. But Wayne Jackson said it this way. He said, what about the accident victim who is brain dead, but whose biological functions still are maintained by sophisticated machinery? Must a Christian family prolong the physiological process of a loved one who is in a state of suspended animation in that for years? There's nothing in the Scriptures that would mandate this. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, at verse number 8, Paul wrote and said, Yes, we're of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. You see, sometimes the very best thing that one can do for a Christian loved one is to let that loved one go on home to be with the Lord. Not hastening the death by smothering them with a pillow or overdosing them with some kind of drug that is intentionally given to take their life or taking a gun and shooting someone. But with these other three forms of what has been termed by academia good death, we can find no fault as far as Scripture is concerned. You know, as we close our lesson this morning, the greatest end of life decision is not having to do with how we're going to die, but our decision to become and live as a Christian. Along with that comes the commitment to live as a faithful Christian. And so as we bring this lesson to a close, in which we've explored some things and not in full detail, perhaps. As we come to this, let me simply ask you this question. If you or someone you love were forced to make an end-of-life decision about you today, would you be ready to go? I'm not asking, are you ready to leave your loved ones? I'm not asking trying to get up a, a whole group to go to heaven today. 
I'm asking you a serious question. If you were called upon to make your end of life decision today, would your life be right with God? If you're not a Christian, you've never had your sins washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ through baptism. You're not ready. You're not ready to go. If you've been living, even though you've had, you have been baptized, you've been living as though you're just like the world, you're not ready to go. And more importantly than making those advanced directives, the do not resuscitate and the healthcare proxy decisions, you need to make the decision this morning to get your life right with God. It may be that you want to make that decision today. We're here for you. No one responds alone. But if you need to respond this morning, why don't you do it right now as we stand and sing?